We acknowledge that we are on Treaty 6 territory, the gathering grounds of many diverse First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples whose footsteps have marked this land and whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. Hello, and welcome back to Research Recasted, the knowledge mobilization podcast. I'm Megan Miskimen, and I'm here with Renette Schaubert, and we are joined by our guest today, Dr. Junaid Jahangir. Junaid is an associate professor of economics and a co-author of the book, Islamic Law and Muslim Same-Sex Unions. On today's episode, Junaid will be discussing his research in heterodox economics and the development of renewed perspectives in teaching undergraduate economics. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Junaid. Um, we always like to start by learning a little bit more about what attracted our guests to their field, just to get an idea of, of where this all started. Can you tell us a little bit about what attracted you to start doing this kind of research? Well, Megan, I, I graduated uh, with my doctorate degree in 2011, and my research back then was in energy economics. And... Um, but then since then, uh, I started looking into Islamic law and Muslim same-sex unions, and all my attention actually went there. I was hired at McEwen as a lecturer. So essentially, I had a huge teaching load and no research commitment. That gave me some time because I was hired in 2010, and it gave me some time to uh, wrap up my PhD uh, dissertation and uh, uh, and then it also allowed me some time actually to focus on things that were really, really serious back then, very important for me. So between 2012 to 2018, I did that research in Islamic law and Muslim same-sex unions. And when it came to a culmination, so in 2018, I, beginning, I began to think, what exactly is it that my research agenda is going to be from here on? And at that point, I, I you know, you know, I was actually, even at that point, I was a bit disillusioned with the way textbook economic theory was teaching uh, how we actually how we were using textbook economic theory to teach economics to our undergraduate students. A lot of it is graph based, mathematical, and it does not really touch upon real world issues. So, what, so, for instance, if my students were to go away on Christmas vacation and then their parents ask them or their uncles ask them and aunts ask them, what exactly are you learning? So, they, I mean, the response would be, well, I did this MUX over MUY is equal to PX over PY, and it's like, speak English. It's all Greek <laughs> to us. And so that was actually, you know... I began to think about these things. How is it that I can make economics more relatable to undergraduate students from, you know, from the daily lives, from the, how it influences them? And that is where I started actually looking at alternative perspectives in economics. And that's where heterodox economics comes in. And when I started reading those books and articles and, and material, and then I came across articles which were basically challenging the way we teach economics. So there were professors in the United States who were using video animations and clips to introduce economic concepts to the students. I was fascinated by that. So, so I was like, you know what, if they can do it there, then I can do, it, do that here. So from 2018 until the present, I'm in an ongoing now, I started work in this area. So essentially my work focuses on introducing alternative perspectives in economics, perspectives that actually speak 
to the students themselves, how the economy impacts them, like viscerally, student loans and the climate change and economic inequality, as opposed to those abstract models. And then, of course, the third one was to actually hook students to my class. So I began to use Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Cinderella, The Little Mermaid, um, and bring uh, imagery and metaphors, economic imagery and metaphors, through those Disney animations. So this brought, so so in a broad way, uh, it's a three prong. So my research falls into these in in, in a tripartite sort of classification. One. Uh, heterodox perspectives, two, appeal to the students, and three, attract students in a fun way. I love it. You couldn't have you couldn't have explained it better. the the way that you the way that you sort of uh, want to make it relative to what what they'll be experiencing in their day to day lives after they graduate, and and how they can find a way to um, you found a way to make it relative to them. I think that's just fantastic. Yeah, um, because one of the things that I actually want them to learn, and I emphasize it because this is the first time at McEwen I'm teaching a brand new course based on my research. It's called Humanistic Economics. Okay. And it's, I mean, I'm currently teaching it. And the th- lesson, the one primary lesson I want the students to learn is don't listen to economists. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure your department just loves that. <laughs> <laughs> so I told them, I said, you know, I need you guys to make up your own. Economic issues are too important to be left in the hands of the experts. Because this is the same idea I encountered in my research in Islamic law and same-sex unions. Your spirituality is too important to be, to be ceded or relinquished to the clerics or the imams or the priests. You are, and same, I apply the same principle here. Your, econo- your economic issues, your, your wages, your pensions, your uh, health care, your education, it's too important. The decisions on these big issues in your life are too important to be left in the hands of you know, uh, other people who assume that they know more than you, where in fact uh, you know better. Yeah, you know yourself best and you know your circumstances best. Yeah, I, I like that. That that makes a lot of sense and it is very, very relevant relevant to to the current times. Um so I guess what what attracted you not only to to pursuing this type of research, but but now like you mentioned, you you teach it. So obviously you you really like that's that's an important thing for you is is you you were so passionate about this that you wanted to spread this awareness and and teach that. So how did you become an associate professor? Like how how did that fall fall into place? How did I become associate professor? Yeah. So well, I, I was hired in twenty ten as a lecturer. Right. Essentially I was teaching ten classes at McEwen. Um and no service or research commitment back then. And so that allowed me time to do, you know, the stuff I was doing in the media, writing articles for Huffington Post and other uh, newspaper outlets. And then uh, after five years or so, into 2015, the lecture positions at McEwen were removed. I automate, uh, automatically I was, tra- I was transitioned to an assistant professor. Okay. So at that point in time, then I began to think about my Future, because at that point, back then, I had no inkling of my career progression. And I was not even paying attention to promotions or anything. I was just too busy doing that work. 
And then I realized that, you know, uh, I've been at McEwen and time passed. And then I, I realized that, you know, 10 years have passed at McEwen and uh, I'm not getting any younger. Mm-hmm. So it's time to folk take my career a tad bit more seriously. And that's when I actually essentially, you know, the, the, the questions that piqued me that, 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 that in, I started working on them and I started with the minimum wage. Uh, because back then Alberta was transitioning to the $15 minimum wage and we were hearing in the media that if you do that, all hell will break loose and there'll be a doomsday scenario and whatnot. And so I actually held a, a discussion uh, through the economic... I'm, I'm also the patron saint of the economics club here. So through them, I hosted a debate, a discussion here in Edmonton on the minimum wage. Should it go to 15 or not? So I had two perspectives over there. And so that was a launching uh, pad for me. That was like, you know what? People are saying different things over here. Let me see. So I delved into that issue. And then I wrote my first paper. And it was accepted for publication. So that basically, so you know, when you receive, how to say, a pat on the back, that, yeah, well done, then you basically get incentivized to explore more. Yeah, to do it again. To do it again. And then one thing led to another. Then I wrote a paper on inequality, on climate change, on uh, my one of my current papers is on trade um, and went on and on and on. So my whole idea now is to finally collect all this work that I've been doing in some sort of a book format or something so students can then essentially um, uh, deal with the, the contemporary issues uh, as opposed to just theory, just just abstract mathematics out there. So I think uh, your question was about... No, I, I think you answered it perfectly. I wanted to know sort of like the root of what, what brought you to, to not only uh, look into this yourself, but actually teach it to others. Oh, yeah, because, because here's the thing, like, you know, uh, for me, I've all, uh, uh, my, a little bit of my background, I come from a working class background. So these issues of minimum wage because because I always feel like you know whenever you want to raise the tax at for the tippy tops uh, all the way in the billionaire level the arguments the naysaying arguments are made in the media oh don't tax them they will vote with the feet they will run away they will not be corporations will leave and they will offshore and outsource and all of that all these arguments are made but when it comes to help, actually doing something for the working poor um, you know, uh, again, uh, naysaying arguments are made. And I'm like, what do we, what sort of economy are we living in where the rich keep on getting richer and everyone else is just living on peanuts? And, 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 and so with my own prior background, uh, working class background, so I find it a bit, I don't know, there's jarring. I find it, there's something awry here. There's something wrong here. And so, and, and so, and uh, because as a teacher as well, I want to to share these ideas with young people, because older people, in my impression, I mean, some of them are jaded. You know, they're, they're yes. like, OK, I've lived my life and uh, I don't really care the world, wherever the world is heading. But young people, when I see them, they, at least in my students, I love teaching over here at McEwen because when I because their energy passes on to me. And I see them that they are they're passionate about certain things, and when they are there, then I want to, you know, you know, it it makes me younger. Let's put it that way, <laughs> you know, and and I get drawn into it, 
Uh, in fact, what I did with humanistic economics the first whole month in September, we were just talking about Disney animations through and through. And I saw the, all these students, their, their eyes were like widened up and, and they were like, wow, I'd never saw Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs that way. And, um, and, then, and then I saw my students, like, you know, my other classes, the regular classes, with, which are heavily traditional, traditional classes. I mean, students come, some don't come, but this class, they're all there. And they're all there, rain or shine. And that is where I feel really accomplished. Like, I got this, I got this. Yeah, absolutely. You know what, that, that's such a good point because it shows that not only, not only do they enjoy the class, but they're probably getting something from it and that's why they continue to come back. So that, as you said, as a professor, you couldn't, you couldn't feel more accomplishment than having all of your students at every single class. And I think, I think that's definitely something to be proud of. Oh, yeah, it's like because uh, we're having uh, class presentations. I assign them books, popular books on economics. And these students, I had two presentations already. You know, for us as faculty members, our job is to make sure people read the books. You know, <laughs> you have to, you have to just, you just please read it. And, you know, this is... And, on various occasions, people don't. They skim or they do, an, you know, how to say it, a half-baked job. But this time when I saw these students, they were into it. They had read the book inside out. And when these boys were presenting in class, they knew their material. I was pleasantly, uh, how to say, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I was, they made me proud. <laughs> they made me real proud. And I was like, damn, I mean... Uh, but 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 then again, it's a, it's the it's the content. The content spoke to them, and if, when something speaks to you, you automatically take interest in it. You know, in my other classes, when I'm doing all that math on the board and all these equations, and I can see okay, some are in the, the math inclined people are awake, and then the other people are dozing off. But here, all everyone was into it, and I was like, yeah, that's good. Well, speaking of that. Um, because I'm now I'm now interested because I know you mentioned it a little bit um, before. Uh, what can you tell us about the Seven Dwarves and and your comparison there? Is yes. that something you can? Yeah. <laughs> so because over there, principle number eight. When we when my students take economics 101, we teach them the ten principles of economics, or at least I do. It's a standard from the standard ManQ textbook. ManQ is the big name in economics introductory textbooks. So principle number eight, in fact, I was basically critiquing all the principles, but this one stood out for me, again, based on my working class background. Uh, it is that your living standard is based on your productivity. So the more productive you are, the more loaves of bread you bake, uh, the more wages you are going to make. And that just doesn't sit well with me. Because I know people in the economy who work day in, day out, they're working like dogs. And yet, what do they have to show for themselves? They're still vulnerable. We call them the precariat. They're in precarious situation. Okay? The wages they make are peanuts. They're clocking in the hours. They, they face, how to say, variable uh, work schedules. And uh, they don't have anything to show for themselves in terms of getting a, in having pension, access to decent health care. I mean, we do have a good health care compared to the U.S., of course. But, you know, you, know, you don't just want to exist. You want to live. 
can they afford a mortgage can they have a car can they basically raise a family this is very very important for for me when i look at my students so so i i was a bit how to say i i did that principle doesn't sit well with me so that's why i was uh, i thought that how do i introduce the heterodox perspective which basically is about your living standards are basically living your your living standards are influenced by the political and the economic structure where essentially what happens is the ceos of the company the high executives they make six digit salaries not because they are productive but because uh, but because of the institutional arrangement because of the political environment that's how they get their six digit salaries because the ceo are making an obscene amount of money out here even though they don't have much productivity to show for it the entire uh, financial crisis of 2008 many of these high profile uh, executives they brought down their firms and yet they left with millions of dollars in their pockets so how do you then square that real life uh, observation with this principle that we teach our students that the more productive you are the more wages you're going to make it doesn't really make sense yeah something doesn't add up here no. yeah <laughs> so then i said all right so i need to teach this stuff to my students that no it's not based on your productivity it's based on ma- various factors one thing of course is 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 your luck it's an important thing suppose for instance you're good looking and uh, you're a, suppose you're a server in a rest and this is the example i give to my students as you're a server one is a good looking server and one is well jesus loves you and <laughs> we'll, we'll put it that way they have, they they get a chuckle out of that one and so a good looking server doesn't really have to put in much effort to get good tips from from the uh, customer but the other person who's really working you know really really working and the, sometimes the customer would say well you missed that or you didn't do this properly the food is a bit cold or 101 excuses so that's one example where the lack of you know you know your endowment your genes your looks or the the family you were born in the neighborhood you grew up in the school you attended whether it was a public school or an elite private school all these things add up and they influence your economic outcome in life so it's not just about working hard there are more factors more than that then i also tell my students take a look at your own academic performance some of you when i teach stuff you you quickly things you you can quickly absorb material and others amongst you you will take 3 hours and then you will reach the same Uh, condition then for the boys i give the analogy of bodybuilding and i tell them some of you go to the gym and even after 5 years you're like all right blip he's a small muscle whoop de do <laughs> and then and then on the other hand then you have some guys who go 6 months they just look at the weights and then they become human so that's life and so it's so this principle i discounted this principle so that's where i said okay what's a what's a fun way to introduce this other than all these examples that's where the seven dwarfs come in so what i do is i play the 2 minute clip uh if uh high ho you know that song we dig 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 in the mind the whole day through and the reason i show this is because students can connect with the childhood childhood memories and it brings all the you know good memories back to them and that is how you get them because when you reach students based on the happy days based on the happy memories they they're drawn to you so the dwarves are digging so i basically show the whole uh, video with subtitles so students follow that then i ask them 
if the dwarves, what are the dwarves digging? And then they say rubies and diamonds and gems. And then I say, okay, if they're digging all day through, how is their living standard like? And then they tell me, oh, they live in a cottage. The cottage is really filthy or, you know, or, you know unkempt. They live far away in a forest. And so what is their living standard like? And then I ask them to compare their living standard with that of the evil queen. She lives in a nice castle far uh, uh, in, in the story. She's rich. She's got henchmen to do her bidding. And so I say, so then I compare the living standards and I said, okay, they're working really, really hard. Something is wrong over here. But she, she's just looking in the mirror all day long. And that's where I bring in the idea of conspicuous consumption. Nice dresses, uh, showing off on social media. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I bought a Gucci or a Prada or Louis Vuitton bag or something like that. Designer clothes. So I draw the contrast between them. Like, what is her contribution to the, to, to, in, the, in the story and what is their contribution? They are more productive. They're the ones who save the heroine at the end of the day or whatever you want to call her. But she's the one who, you know, uh, who's the villain over here. So then I bring it down. Then I bring it back to the real life, to the real economy. Then I tell them, okay, you have, you have the Zuckerbergs and the Bezoses and then you have the um, uh, Elon Musks on this side and then you have your frontline workers who put their lives at, and this is what I bring in the pandemic, who put their lives at risk for what? So that, you know, we, we end up calling them heroes. But we, but we don't, and, and, and this is what I call performative activism. We call them heroes, the nurses and the grocery workers, the sanitation workers, but yet, and, and, and of course, and we put in, you know, uh, nice stickers and everything. Oh, uh, you, we, we, we pretend we, uh, we, we care about equity, diversity and inclusion and all of that stuff. But at the end of the day, what do we really do? We, uh, we don't really pay them well. Because if we really want to appreciate these nurses and these sanitation workers and these grocery workers, we need to pay them well. And that's when I bring in the real-life example of the hero pay with lob loss essentially provided for just two months, and it was clawed back during the pandemic. And during the same year, lob loss made billions of dollars. The, the, the net worth went up. The, pro, the, pro, the profits were in millions. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then you couldn't afford to pay $2 more to the people who were actually risking their lives. So some again, it, so I connect all of this with that principle that your living standards are not based on your productivity. And so that that is so I wrote that paper, send it for publication. And by the way, John Coppolis is essentially one of the main heterodox, one of the big heterodox economists out there. So I, it was it was a, it was my way to introduce, connect Disney animations with him as a tribute to his work. And uh, yeah, so that's that's the that's what I can talk about that paper. That's awesome. I uh, I actually had a chance to to read uh, to, to read it. Yeah, you had you had linked it in the uh, in the interview form, and uh, I I found it quite interesting actually. I I found it a lot more relative to like you you brought it. What I liked about the way that you made that comparison is just like how you said um, at the beginning of this podcast, it made something that prior to coming into this for me was so foreign and confusing it made it so so much easier to understand by by um comparing it to something that i was already familiar with yes so i think you hit a nail on the head with that one oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um i think right now it's a good time to take a short little break 
Uh, but uh, don't go too far because we'll be right back to talk more about Jeanette and his research. Looking for a new place to work or study? Sick of bad coffee with mediocre sandwiches? Being around the world has you covered. With their reliable roast that is consistently delicious to their unbeatable menu of comfort food and their incredibly beautiful atmosphere, you'll be looking for reasons to stay longer. A mere block behind McEwen's Allard Hall, you'll have no excuse not to check it out. All right, we are back here with Janaid, Associate Professor of Economics here at McEwen. Uh, so Janaid, I have really enjoyed talking about your uh, your perspectives in uh, in in in, uh, in I guess renewed perspectives in teaching at the undergraduate level uh, in economics and making it more relative to to students f- to, f- to make it easier for them to understand. Um, I'd like to touch on one of your older projects, uh, the book that you were co-author uh, of Islamic Law and Muslim Same-Sex Unions. What can you tell us about that that book and the work that went into it? A lot of work actually went into it uh, because when I started working on that, I wasn't even planning to write that book. Um, In fact, all the way back in uh, 2010, I had basically given a presentation on that particular issue. And at that point, it was essentially a community-based work. I had no plans to write academic articles, no plans to write a book. And then... Uh, a conference came up in 2012 at the American Academy of Religion in Chicago. And uh, the my co-author, who is a pediatric endoc- endocrinologist, a, let's, a kid's doctor. <laughs> and uh, so he's in Alabama. And so I asked him, I said, Hussein, uh, this conference is coming up and we have this work. Nobody takes us seriously in the community. They always sideline us. Do you want to go there and uh, present it? Because I I don't travel to the U.S., let's put it that way. (laughs) So he says, yeah, that would be a good idea. So I wrote that article based on my work and his work. And uh, uh, he went to the conference. There, a young man greeted him uh, after his presentation and he told him he said i think it would be a good idea if you guys write a book and so hussein passed off that idea to me and we thought we talked about it and we said uh, we have we have done all this work here and there and there and you know in different bits and pieces in articles why don't we just collect all our material and put it in one place make it a comprehensive uh, thing. So we agreed on that, and that was the beginning of the project. So from 2012 since 20, till 2016, it took me four years to write the book. Of course, I was teaching 10 classes in the morning, and then in the night I would just go, and sometimes I had no energy to write, and sometimes I had. And so what I did, I actually went through the entire Islamic scriptures, the Quran, the secondary sources of knowledge, the exegesis, the juristic literature, the, you know, and all the sayings of the prophets and uh, and his companions and the scholars and the jurists and the exegetes. I collected everything in one book. So the book is more like an encyclopedia of uh, what did different people say on this particular issue. And I structured it that way. So that I didn't want to leave any stone under. And then what I did was 
there's a lot of rhetoric which comes from mainstream Muslim bodies here in North America that, well, they, they come up with our, it's unnatural, homosexuality is unnatural, or it's uh, a test from God, a test of patience, or uh, it's the worst sin ever, or if or under an Islamic state, the punishment is death, and you're going to burn in hell, and all of that stuff. So you had to deconstruct all of it. I mean, of, of course, one one strategy would have been to chuck it all away and say, I don't really care, and you move on with your life, right? But then that strategy does not really help the young uh, person who is religious and who is struggling with these issues. So, of course, there were people out there who, who, who identified themselves as gay or whatever label they use for themselves, they move on with their lives or they have dual lives. Uh, one, one face to show to the community and one face for the personal lives. Some get married in marriages of convenience and whatnot. So there's a, there's, there's a lot of, how to say, a, a, a moral inconsistency over there. So, uh, so I said, all right, so we need, to, we need to tackle all of this. So I addressed all these issues in that book. And the basic, the punchline of that book is that the human need for intimacy, affection, and companionship should not be reduced or compared to the aggressive sexual assault of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah in the scriptures and the modern day equivalent would be, and I give them the modern day equivalent which is what the American army did in post-war Iraq in the Abu Ghraib prison where lots of the Iraqi soldiers were sexually abused and assaulted over there. So I said that's the imagery that those verses are talking about. I said you can't compare that with the legitimate human need for intimacy, affection and companionship. And I also make this point in the book and you cannot reduce the human need for affection with a single sexual act or with fetishes or with, uh, I don't know, with sexual conduct, which, you know, pornography, which, which, which is replete with, uh, I don't know, one, some gross, one gross fantasy after another. Yeah, yeah. Like you can't, you can't take one idea and, and, and take another example that was, that maybe you had a negative connotation yeah. about it. Uh, and and just reduce it to that yeah. negative connotation. You're right, yeah, and that and that's where I made it a point. I said, oh, the, the, if the the Muslim, then I essentially uh, then I did a TED talk based on uh, the book, and I basically emphasized the point that the Jewish community, the Reform Jewish movement, the conservative Jewish movement, they have accepted their LGBTQ congregants. Amongst the United Churches, they have accepted their LGBTQ congregants. But in the Muslim hemisphere, there is no um, acceptance at all, even to this date. And you have the Muslims in Calgary website in uh, out there. Even today, they have all these punishments uh, linked on their website. So it hasn't really, despite all my academic work and despite the community work I was doing, it hasn't gone anywhere. And I think part of the reason has to do with the fact that unless and until the young Muslim youth, unless and until they don't stand up and ask that, you know, we want to be treated as, e as equal members of this community, things will not change. Academics can do the scribbling, but 
the real change will happen at the grassroots level when people stand up. Unfortunately, what happens amongst the youth today, because they're dealing with other issues like discrimination or race, racial discrimination or uh, issues of Palestine or issues of uh, uh, politics and uh, you know, all of that stuff, Islamophobia and all of that. So they're more invested in those sort of issues. And that one issue under the nose, that piece pretty much goes unaddressed. And then 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 you end up then you see some young people end up making these cultural relativism arguments. In fact, a lot of opposition to my work. I mean, you have immigrant communities and then you have the people, the second and third generation here. So a lot of criticism, pushback also comes from the second and third generation people here. They say, well, why are you imposing Western values on our community? So they bring in cultural relativism. This is our way of doing I, things. I hadn't even thought of that until you bring it up. That, yeah. is, that is what's happening. Fact, in fact, I can deal with criticism that that emerges from the conservative immigrant groups because I'm one of them and I can we speak the same language uh, so I can address all that but I cannot address the criticism that emerges from the younger folks who are essentially um, uh, adopting more conservative viewpoints because that is the way that they address their issues of discrimination or uh, racial stereotyping and Islamophobia and whatnot. So a lot of that is coming there. And in fact, the greatest criticism that I receive is actually from closeted Muslims. I was about to ask if, yeah, yeah, that, that actually does not surprise me at all. They are the harshest. I've read a uh, piece on Reddit and the young man goes on and on and on and how I'm making things worse for people and how I'm just here to please the white man and... And, and, and it just it was it was a rant which went on. And I just and that that was also a cue for me. You know, maybe I've done too much work in this area. It's time to move on to heterodox economics <laughs> and focus on my own career rather than, you know, because at point a time comes when you've had enough. I mean, I can see if all this criticism was coming from from the clerics, from the conservative community, I was more than capable of dealing with that. But this I was not prepared for. This I just... Have you seen that movie Braveheart? Let me give you a metaphor for that. You know Braveheart with Mel Gibson, yeah? So there's this battle and then, you know, he's, he's gung-ho. He says, come on, Scotsman, we're going to show the English and boom, boom, boom. And then there's one scene in which Robert the Bruce, he fights with the King Edward Longshanks and that's when Mel Gibson's character, William Wallace, he just gives up. He says, not one of my own. That, that facial expression, that's a sight to, to basically uh, observe. And that's how I feel. Like, you know, when, 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 when these guys uh, pull these antics, and uh, that's fine because then they, because... Because uh, it's expected. You yeah. know, it's, ex it's expected that, that the main opposition is going to oppose what you're saying. Yes. But when people who you are fighting for yeah. are like, nah, don't, don't fight for us. Yeah. <laughs> and in fact, this is exactly what I taught my students in economics as well. Because one of the young men in my class, he wants to do a project in heterodox economics. And he, like, he's really passionate about it. He says, I really care about this. I care about the truth and everything. And I said, young man, just remember one thing. Your opposition is not going to be the, the hardcore capitalist or the money-minting corporation. Your biggest uh, opposition is going to come from your own ranks. 
when fellow heterodox economists or Marxists push, uh, pull you down, they'll be your fiercest critics. And uh, that is, in fact, I think that's, that's something I've learned in my life, that the people closest to you hurt you the most. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And especially, like you said, when you when you sort of invested all that time, like this book was, what did you say, four years? Four years. Like, so so that's that's a long time. That's a lot. That's a big chunk of time. And like you said, you were working full time. You would come home. You would have no more energy. And you did all this research only to be sort of challenged by the very people that you were trying to encourage. Um, yeah. Yeah. I can't I can't imagine. So. So is, is that that's how it is? And, and, and yeah, yeah, that's that's how it goes sometimes, I guess. Hey, yeah. um, but it sounds like it, it sounds like you were able to find something else that that moved you, which is good. That is correct. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and now, like you said, you've been able to sort of translate that into uh, inspiring some of your students. You, you mentioned that you have a student who's interested in the very thing that you were interested in. So yes. that. Uh, it, the the circle kind of came it kind of came full circle here for yes. you so but that's the biggest reward for an for a teacher yeah the biggest reward is that you can see the students getting passionate about it and then moving beyond you because again I you know I quote Leonardo da Vinci poor is the pupil that does not surpass his master so I tell my students I say you I don't want you to repeat what I say I want you you're standing on my shoulders I've Put, put you up here. Now you go beyond me. And so in this class, I had a couple of students who basically challenged what I said in class. And I liked it. Of course, in a nice way. I don't want them to be rude or anything. But 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 then, you know, I, I brought up a topic and uh, on uh, taxing the tippy tops at the top. And then one of the boys said, but, but all their wealth is in terms of stock. They don't really have cash with them that you could take away. And I said, that's a good point that you're making over here. So what I tell my students in class is that I want you to be free. I want you to be free to pick any perspective, whether it's right wing or left wing or centrist, be free to think. That's very important. Because if all I do is just, you know, like shove in the mouths, my perspective, I'm not a good teacher then. I'm an indoctrinator. That's bad. So I want them to be free in my class. I said, whether you vote NDP or UCP or liberal or whichever, you're all welcome in my class. It doesn't mean that we are not going to dissect ideas. We will dissect ideas. In fact, I make students, okay, what do you think? How do you respond to that? I have that. But I want all perspectives to be on the table as opposed to simply, uh, you know, um, giving them mine and... and but, but and, and that's why. And I think that's the main reason that they latch on to me. They know that they'll be safe around me to speak their minds. Yeah, it's like a, it's a safe. Your, your classroom is a safe space to discuss openly. That is correct. all ideas. That yeah. is all. And in fact, in, you know, you know, when I use the word safe space, I don't tell them that, you know, uh, I'm going to keep you safe from emotional harm or <laughs> it's, that's not my idea. No guarantees no here. Guarantees yeah. here. <laughs> You know, if you don't like something, I'm going to take my marbles and go back. I'm not playing anymore. I, I tell safe space, I mean, I respect you res irrespective of your religion, your sexual orientation, your gender, your gender. Ex everyone is welcome. But I'm not going to keep you safe from the ideas. You have to do, you have to basically address in a polite way. 
I don't want all of you to be at each other's throats, but I want you to dissect them. And that is, is my idea of safe space, because I understand that you know, some people take it interpreted differently. So it's, if it's not this particular perspective, then you are this, 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 this uh, phobic or this, 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 uh, you know, cancel culture and all. Yeah, like, like, yeah. well, and, and when you deal with things like that, it's, it's you know, it's sort of a, a flipped because they're saying, you know, that's not my safe space, but safe space is such a subjective thing then. And yes. then, you know, you can't, there's no one safe space. Yeah. <laughs> like it, you said, it's, it's safe for everybody to share their ideas and collaborate here. And, and it's safe to disagree here. Exactly. Safe to disagree over here. And I said, I, I don't know how life is on Twitter and how life is outside these f four walls. But in this wall, I am going to maintain this decorum. And, um, and, 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 so, and, and in fact, in one of my classes, uh, I, I, I've also taught economics of religion uh, at McEwen. And one of the students was, uh, you know, felt safe enough. To, when, because when we were talking about the economics of family, one of the students felt brave enough to actually share his coming. He came out in class. Wow. So, so he felt safe enough to share, well, the economic, the specialization of labor between a male and a female in a household. You know, you work, you take, the cake, take care of the household, I'll take care of the finances or whatever, that specialization of uh, labor. Uh, it doesn't really happen in uh, gay couples. Ah, so that's, yes. That's specialization. So he basically, he came out and then he basically contrasted his understanding with the specialization of labor uh, uh, concept. Okay. And so he disagreed with it. And I'm like, yes, that's, that's, that's what I want to see in my students, that poor is the pupil who does not surpass his master. So you have now surpassed me. Yeah, now they're making you think. They're, exactly. <laughs> so they're, now, they're, they're now looking, they're bringing in new perspectives. And that is how we grow. Yeah. But if I all I do is I just, you know, this is it and I'm going to keep you safe from all the emotional <laughs> harm out there. What am I doing? Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I uh that's that's all I have for now. Is there anything else that you that you want to add that we haven't already touched on or no, but uh, the only thing I'll add over here is that a lot of my research is uh, feeding into my teaching. Like my research is not out there, which is going to, I don't know, go and revolutionize the world and get a cure for cancer or AIDS or something, whatever. It's not like that. My research is basically more about how I can make my classroom a better place, how I can get my students interested. And so I'm introducing new courses at McEwen. So the first one was economics of religion. Second one was humanistic economics. The third one, hopefully, that I'm going to be introducing this spring is uh, future studies. And then hopefully in the future, I want to introduce courses in uh, the, the macroeconomics, but from a heterodox perspective, like um, should we really be worried about budget deficits? Uh, what is the uh, mainstream, say, the mainstream economic perspective is that we really, really, really need to focus on our budget. We can't really uh, overspend. But then I, but then the question is, what do we do with the things that really matter, like healthcare and education? We are not just spending extra money on building statues of people like Saddam Hussein and gods and something and worshipping them. We are actually using all the money for the future of Alberta. Yeah. The students, 
uh, if they're if not going to be healthy, if they're not going to be educated, then what sort of future are we really creating over here? So that is some, some, a course in the pipeline, which hopefully I'll, I won't introduce in the next couple of years or so. But so the bottom line here of all this research is um, research that fits into teaching and uh, how it adds value to student experience at McEwen. So that's, that's, that's all what it's all about. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's brilliant. So that's something that that some students can look forward to then are these are these upcoming courses. So absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. We we really enjoyed uh, the conversation. Uh, that's it for today's episode of Research Recasted. If you think that this podcast can change your world, you can visit Research Recasted on your favorite podcast platform to find new episodes every two weeks. Also, don't forget to check us out on Instagram at Research Recasted, where you can leave a like, give us a follow, or send a message if you have any follow-up questions from today's episode. This has been Research Recasted, a knowledge mobilization podcast brought to you by the Office of Research Services and the Faculty of Fine Arts and Communications here at McEwen University. Research Recasted is hosted and produced by Megan Miskimen and Renette Schaubert. Music is by Dylan Cave, with sound design and editing by Renette Schaubert, with research, copy editing, and scripting by Megan Miskimen. Our executive producer is Ray Barry. 